I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. I have a really brilliant topic today um, that's come to us via another one of our guests. Um, that we absolutely love and I needed somebody sunny and enthusiastic and bouncy uh, and I only know one of these people that I haven't killed yet and that's Beth you're right Beth I'm good thanks I'm happy to be the sunny happy person in your life (laughs) (laughs) you were so excited when you saw what this was about so tell everybody who's here and what we're talking about Well, I know I am, and I'm sure Alex is as well. We are just so excited for this episode with our absolutely fabulous guest, Carolyn Purnell. Um, Carolyn is a historian and writer with a particular focus on colour and how people throughout history have seen and experienced colour. She's won numerous awards for her work and has written for the Wall Street Journal, Four Seasons Magazine and Good Housekeeping. She also has her own blog for Psychology Today called Making Sense, with titles including The Colour Revolution, Is Colour the Key to World Peace? And There's Nothing Neutral About Neutral Colours. She's also given a TEDx talk called The Captivating Invention of Colour, and her first book, published in 2017, called The Sensational Past, How the Enlightenment Changed the Way We Use Our Senses, received rave reviews on a national level. I am just so excited and looking forward to this episode so much. I'm already buzzing she's done the ted talk as well carolyn hello hi thanks for having me joining us from la as well yes yes, not sunny and colorful today no no it's actually not today have a a little bit of a rainy spell you're in la and i'm in south london (laughs) Um, i can't brag today though yeah (laughs) this is brilliant so you don't just look at this as yellow and this is a history of yellow you look at how people have engaged with color Um, and how they view it and we're going to learn today that throughout history people saw it differently Um, but we take bright vibrant colour for granted these days but talk to us about colourance in the pre-modern world because it was very different wasn't it? Yes, it was really different uh, as far as how people had access to colors. So I think we kind of take for granted if we just look around us that our walls are painted or our clothes have brightly saturated colors or we have art or books, etc. But for most of human history, actually, people only had access to the colorants that were in their particular region. So um, all colorants would have to come from plants or animals or minerals, which meant that they were really specific to the season in which they were available, to the geography of the place. So, you know, someone in France would have very different plants from someone living in, you know, say Malaysia. 
Um, and in an era before industrialization and easy transportation, it meant that your color world was pretty circumscribed. Um, and where you could get access to bright or kind of exotic colors, they were usually incredibly expensive, which is why most people in Europe in the Middle Ages wouldn't have had access to any art except maybe what they saw in their local church, um, which is why stained glass and those paintings in church were even more awe-inspiring than they are today. So, Carolyn, people saw colour differently in the past, didn't they? And how, how did they sort them? How did they quantify the colours? Yeah, so biologically, uh, you know, there probably aren't a lot of differences in how people actually saw color. But culturally speaking, in terms of how people experience color or thought about color or describe colors, there is a huge difference um, across the span of time. So, you know, think, for instance, we tend to organize colors primarily by hue. So when you're in kindergarten, you learn red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. Um, And those are the main ways we kind of think about organizing colors. But if you were growing up in ancient Greece, you actually would have seemed really weird to to think in terms of hue. That's not at all the way they categorize their experience of color. Um, They tended to categorize categorize colors much more by the light of the uh, or the conditions of light or luminosity. So, you know, an example is when we shoehorn our colors into translations of Greek literature, they sound kind of weird. So it's why we kind of think, why would Homer say that there are purple sheep? Um, it's because the, the word for purple isn't actually the word for purple. It's something that's much more akin to a concept of swirling. Um, or if we think about the word for kyaneos, it's where we get our modern source of the word cyan, which we might think of as like your printer ink or something turquoise, you know, very vibrant. But it actually was a color that referred to uh, red wine, rotten blood, and Zeus's eyebrows. So it was kind of like a dark, thick, murky uh, kind of a color. And that's why we have the description of the sea uh, as wine dark sea, if you've ever heard that description. It's because there's not an easy term for, for that color. It's more a condition of opacity um, and light than it is of a particular hue. And, you know, that that might seem really strange, but it's actually, it kind of makes sense if you think about the fact that colors were coming from all of these material sources. So if you're using something like the matter root to dye a garment, depending on how long you steeped it or depending on the particularities of that root, you can end up with a color that from our perspective is anywhere from red to brown to orange to gold. Um, so it wouldn't really have made sense. You would have referred to that as matter. You would have re- referred to it by the material, not by the hue that that material produced. That's so interesting. Um, I think if you ask a layman like us two, uh, what we think we know about colours in the past, we would probably say that we think that the, the big, bright colours, um, the further back you go, uh, equal wealth. And you would be spot on. Yeah, that's it. Um, That's all we know. (laughs) Hey, I think that's pretty good. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think one of the best examples is why we think of purple as a royal color is actually because um, so royal purple came originally from a carnivorous sea snail called the murex sea snail that has a, a gland that produces this hyper rich, bright Um, It's typically purple, but it can also produce other colors, but purple was the most coveted. Um, And so when, 
just to give you a sense of the scale of this, it takes 12,000 of those snails just to make 1.4 grams of dye. So, I mean, it's extremely labor intensive. These snails were difficult to catch. Then you had to go through the whole process of curing them, boiling them, doing all of these crazy things after you've sliced out this minuscule little gland. So basically it took a lot of time, labor, resources to produce colors. I want to know what someone was doing when they figured the (laughs) gland out. Like what? Yeah, I know. (laughs) to go I'm going to take this snail home and dissect it right I I can find (laughs) I feel like there was some uh you know probably false story I read somewhere that there is some urban legend that like a dog was frolicking on the beach and grabbed a snail and it squished purple all over him I I don't know where I saw that (laughs) someone with a snail fetish to be honest yeah yeah I mean in these I mean, it's as lovely as a sea snail can be, but I just can't imagine sitting with... Apparently, it reeked, too, to make this dye. Yeah, apparently it smelled quite horrid. Um, But, yeah, so those bright, bright colors were... They meant money because they cost a lot of money to make. And so you can also think, you know, this... We think of the Virgin Mary probably first symbolically in terms of like wearing blue because she's very celestial or pure or innocent or heavenly. Um, but really it's because blue in the 13th century was the most uh, expensive color. It was imported into Italy in the 13th century for the first time from Afghanistan, which at the time was the only place it was mined. Um, and for a hundred grams of the mineral, it only produced four grams of pigment. And so basically you have all of these guys in Afghanistan in a mine sending donkeys carrying hefty loads of this mineral back over the mountains and then having to get it to Italy and processing it. And um, it yielded the pigment ultramarine, which literally means from across the sea. Um, But that's why people used it for Mary is because it's a sign first of wealth and, you know, secondarily of honor because you are willing to splash all of this money um, into a painting to honor Mary. But it's, yeah, bright colors were a sign of power because they were so hard to produce. Isn't black as well in Tudor times um, because it's so hard to get dark, dark black. Yeah, like that's why black. and everybody are walking around in black robes and lawyers. It's because it says, check my threads. Yeah, yeah, it's not this like veneer of austerity, which it is symbolically, I guess. But um, yeah, there's definitely a check my thread element to it. If yeah. you can get a pure black, you know, that doesn't quickly fade to a more like muddy brownish color, it, it's really a sign of power. You're on to a winner there. Yeah. <laughs> so when when does this start to to change, and why? How does it become that these colors, these purples and reds, and all the colors that we associate with wealth and power? When do they become more um, more more common for the everyday person? Yeah, so it, that's a it's a great question. It's kind of a long process, but it really started in I would say the the 17th and 18th centuries, um, and and really centered around the expansion of trade networks and more pointedly colonialism and slavery um, in Europe. Once you expanded, once Europeans expanded their territories into these colonial places in the world, they had access, physical access to more and different types of pigments, but they also exploited labor in those places to produce those pigments. So um, the anthropologist Michael Tausig has made an argument I find really compelling, which is that colonialism connected what he calls chromophilic parts of the globe, color loving parts of the globe. 
So basically what ended up happening is this love of color fueled or helped expand the slave trade. So you would have, um, let's say, British people who buy calicos in India and then go to Africa to trade those brightly colored textiles for slaves. Um, and then they take those slaves to a plantation to produce indigo to make more colorants that they can then market not only in Europe, but to those other colonial territories. So really you have a, a full loop that's completed in this um, kind of this commercialization of color that really takes off in this period. Um, but it, it's the rise of color as a mass commodity is really closely tied to the exploitation of you know, people of color across the globe. And you get random people come into the story, don't you? How does Isaac Newton fit all, into all of this? Because there is a point, isn't there, when we get to sort of the development of science and the enlightenment where things really change. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like anytime you have a narrative that touches on the history of science, Isaac Newton is like lurking in there somewhere. Yeah. He's he's going to come like up. Just seeking in the background. Yeah. <laughs> <And> our <laughs> totally. historian Pitt would hate this because he hates Isaac Newton. I can't remember what his beef is with him, but he hates it. Um, but he got really angry when he got all those Greatest Britain votes and stuff. So he would not. Oh gosh! But he, it's like he's at the part in the back of the party saying, "Look, you can't have science without me." Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, but he like, is all right. in the background, isn't he? He is. Um, you know, I think obviously most people, when we think about um, about color as it relates to Newton, you think of like probably 1704, he publishes Optics, which really did change the way people thought about light and about um, how color worked. But I think for me, Newton's more interesting color legacy is actually, um, I, this is going to sound strange, but he invented the rainbow. Um, and hear me out on this. So in he, the 16th... Didn't, no, I know you're going with this yeah. kind of thing, aren't you? Yeah. Um, I mean, it sounds so silly because, you know, rainbows exist. But in the 1660s, the last major outbreak of the bubonic plague was happening in Britain. And Isaac Newton left Cambridge where he was he was studying and he ended up going to the countryside, hightailed it, quarantined, which we're all familiar with now, um, and had a lot of time on his hands, which we're also probably familiar with. and he started doing all of these experiments with light. Um, you know, you probably have heard about the lens experiments or him playing with a prism. He also stuck a needle into his eye to see what colors it would produce, which I don't recommend. Um, but he, he ended up emerging from this time in quarantine with a set of lectures he delivered in 1670, between 1670 and 1672, called the Optical Lectures. And in these lectures, he argued that there was a five-color spectrum. It was red, yellow, green, blue, and violet. Um, So no orange and no indigo. And between 1672 and 1704, he had a change of heart. And um, Isaac Newton was deeply religious. And he felt that seven was a sacred number and that a seven-color spectrum would be, quote, more elegantly proportioned. So he decided to add two colors. And, you know, I think the reason this is so interesting to me is because, you know, we can all probably say indigo might seem a little wonky. Like a lot of people, at least in America, have already kind of dropped it from the rainbow when you teach kindergartners, like indigo kind of like gets left out. But times, man, my favorite. I know, poor indigo. But (laughs) it's um, like Pluto not being a planet. But I'm just I'm sticking with what I know and what I school and everyone else can suck it. It's Roy G. Biv all the way. You need yeah. that eye. 
Um, but Indigo was a weird addition because it was at the time, it was more of a colorant than a color. So you could use indigo to make everything from gray to green to blue to dark blue to purple. And so by giving it this very specific location in a rainbow, Newton really locked indigo into a very specific color. So it would be kind of like if we put bleach into the rainbow today. It just seems kind of strange. Mm. Um, and the other weird color, orange, it might seem kind of normal and natural now, but at the time, it was a very, very new color term. Um, prior to the 1660s, people would have referred to that shade as tawny or red-yellow or, uh, sorry, yellow-red is more common, or gold. Um, and it was only with the importation of oranges into Britain, the fruit, um, a few decades earlier that people really started getting excited about these like juicy, delicious fruits. And they started conflating the color with the, the fruit. So the color name actually comes from the fruit first. Um, and so it'd be like Newton sticking like acai or goji berry or some other superfood into the rainbow. So I don't know. I just think it's an interesting fact that we kind of think of these things as eternal, universal. We all learn them. And yet there's some... Yeah some quirks yeah. of history stuck in there. Well, that, that's absolutely yeah, I, fascinating. Do you not think though that the sticking, how many people do you know that are going to be quite close now to the sticking your pin in the eye just to see what happens? In oh life? my gosh. <laughs> Please, <laughs> this is not an endorsement. <laughs> yeah, it's not an endorsement. Not an no endorsement. matter how boring. We have the internet now. He didn't have the internet. You exactly. Have <laughs> Netflix and Amazon Prime. <laughs> <laughs> there are more healthy and productive ways to use your time. Yeah. Moving forward then from from Isaac Newton and and picking up a little bit, we have the big colour revolution in the 19th century, is that right, where we have this explosion of colours that we've not really seen before. It's a new concept. Yeah. So as I mentioned, things start kind of changing in the 17th and 18th century, but there is a massive revolution, like you said, in the 19th century. And the thing that really catalyzes that is the creation of synthetic chemical colors. Um, and so in 1856, a chemist named William Henry Perkin was trying to find um, a chemical formula for quinine. He was trying to find a solution to help um, all of the British colonialists with malaria out in India. And he ended up synthesizing this thick purple sludge. And he wasn't the first person to create a synthetic color, but he was the first person to think of it as having commercial value. And so he ended up selling this dye as the color mauve. Um, and it just so happened that there was a fad for a very similar purple color that could only be made with these rare lichens from southern France. And it had been a color worn, trying to think now, I want to say it might have been by some some esteemed socialite, I can't remember exactly yeah. who, but she popularized the color. And so when he created it, it was this perfect, uh, perfect moment of this popularity of this color. And now all of a sudden you have a very bright and cheap and easily reproducible version of it that doesn't rely on the mushrooms. And he made it a killing. Um, he made a fortune selling this. So as you can imagine, pretty soon after chemists jumped on board, the color industry really got rolling very quickly. And within a decade, almost every color you can imagine, there was a cheap mass market version of it. Um, and I really can't like, I can't overstate the effect that this would have visually on the world. I mean, it sounds kind of, kind of like, okay, so now they had cheap colors, but really 
like people describe this as super jarring. It would be like if we all started walking around wearing iridescent clothing today. I feel like it's just, you know, these hyper bright colors that even if you've seen them before, you may not have seen them in the quantity that it takes to make a woman's 19th century dress. Is it Um, not only clothes either? Is it buildings? Yeah, it's buildings, it's art, it's lithographs, it's, you know, everything in a department store, interior design, wallpaper, candies are dyed with these things. Um, Like that Pleasantville film. It's like which film? Pleasantville. Oh, yes. Yeah, it is a lot like that. Yeah, where everything suddenly gets saturated. Yeah. That's kind of how I imagine it. Yeah. And was Um, it was it that quickly? Was it just overnight that this... I would say, I mean, it, it, I would say from a historian's point of view, it is overnight. Um, I mean, I think that the first round of coal tar dyes were, were pretty quickly developed. And then of course there were innovations on that and additional colors added throughout different decades with different materials. But for the aniline dyes, they came pretty quickly because chemists already knew how to do this. They just didn't think it was worthwhile. They kind of just tossed it. Um, so Perkin, again, his innovation was really just the commercial savvy. Then you kind of have to combine the availability of all these new colours with the availability of a crap ton more fabrics and stuff, because you get synthetics coming, don't you? So maybe, and this is, you get cheap throwaway clothes as well. It's not like everything you have would be tailored and homemade or made by a right. person. You have yeah, like rat clothing and everything. So is that another explosion? It is. Yeah. I mean, this is happening concurrent and I think they're fueling each other, um, but concurrent with the rise of mass consumerism. So the first apartment stores, um, people also generally, uh, this is kind of the, the era we talk about with the rise of leisure time, the working class having some more leisure. Um, of course, that's not true across the board. People are also in exploitative industrial jobs, um, which I'll mention a little bit about in a second, probably. But um you know, by and large, yeah, there is a whole commercial apparatus that is attached to this, um, as you as you point out, Alex. We also, we just need to say as well, don't we, that this is amazing and the world has turned into technicolor, but there are huge uh, ecological, environmental and health connotations to this, aren't there? Right, because, you know, most of these colors are, or not most, but many of these colors are being made with toxic materials like arsenic or lead. And of course, there were toxic pigments before this, but this, this is an unprecedented scale. This is a, an industrial scale. And so um, on the consumer side, you have, um, you know, there are cases documented where children would eat candies colored with an arsen- arsenical color and they would die or people would die from their, their dresses or their wallpaper. Or they wouldn't know what was making them sick. Um, in terms of, you know, workers, there are these really vivid images and medical manuals of teenage girls often got hired to make paper flowers, artificial flowers, and they would use papers that were dyed with these toxic colors. And so their hands would just develop these lesions. Um, They would get infected. They often were inhaling it and get respiratory diseases and die. Um, And then on an even grander scale, um, you know, I think one of my favorite illustrative stories, not favorite happy stories, um, is the story of the color magenta, which is um, magenta, the color, which it was invented in 1858 by a French chemist named Bergin, and he quickly sold the rights to these French um, brothers, the Renard brothers, who owned a, a colorant manufactory. And 
magenta was extremely popular and they just start churning this color out in these factories in Southern France, but there's no regulation on what they're doing with these toxic materials. So they start dumping all of the byproducts into the local water supply and villagers start dying because they're eating the fish from that water. They're drinking the water, the soil's poisoned Um, and authorities get called in to arbitrate these disputes. And typically Unfortunately, the industrialists are the ones who get off um, because, according to the authorities, you can't definitively prove that they are the source of the arsenic. Um, And so it seems like in this moment, I would think that most public health initiatives ended up actually coming from the consumer public who started to put pressure on manufacturers. They quit buying these toxic products, and then government regulations and courts were actually kind of slow to follow. They would implement regulations after the changes had already kind of taken place. So it's a very unfortunate history where it seemed like money. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Funny talked. Mm. Doesn't it always? Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so by this point, obviously, we've got, you know, these bright vivid purples and you've just mentioned about magenta there as as well by this point in time we've moved on to a world that's filled with these very cheaply obtained um bright colors um how did it affect traditional ways in which color was viewed at the time yeah so we talked earlier about how for huge swaths of history uh, bright color was the sign of power and the sign of status and the sign of wealth but now that doesn't stand anymore because anyone can buy a super bright color. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, on the one hand, this kind of creates a social panic among the elite. There's, there's no way to stand out. Um, but I would say there's also this kind of reaction where now you need a new way to visually determine someone's place in the, the social hierarchy. And so what, what ends up happening is that there is a discourse that develops about good taste um, people of high moral character, of higher class, in the sea of all of this color, showing the restraint to resist it. And so you get the... tacky, doesn't it? Yeah, it becomes tacky. It becomes loud. It becomes garish. And so neutral colors are kind of the new arbiter of taste, of class, of of wealth, power. Uh, This is the same moment you get the rise of the men's black suit. And there are some really great quotations from tailors who are like, oh, my gosh, why is there such a contempt (laughs) for color? Because, you know, if you think about men by comparison in like the Georgian era, uh, you know, they're swanning around in like yellows and pinks and all these fruits and frills. And it's like beautiful. 
beautiful visually. And then all of a sudden you have men in these austere black costumes. Um, mm. And it was uh, as an indicator of their, their gentility, but you can see an almost immediate reversal of, of the color trends, the color standards for what connoted power. That's really interesting. It is, isn't it? So we now have a world in which colour has classist connotations, but there are other ones as well, aren't there? Does it have racist connotations as well? It does, yeah. Um, So there is, at the same time, a discourse developing that um, the other people who enjoy these super bright colours, aside from lower class individuals, are quote-unquote savages. Um, Mm. And and they are also likened to children who like bright colours. And the reasoning... You know, one of one of the people who said this. There are there are many many people who said this, but one of the the first articulated is probably Goethe. But the idea is that supposedly these people don't have refined enough sensory abilities to enjoy the pleasures of subtler colors, and so they need to be beat over the head with sensation with stimulation. Um, and so it's really a commentary. They link people's racial. Um, racial and mental abilities to to the colors that they enjoy and there there becomes a racist connotation to many of these conversations about color i'm telling you now my mom's white and the amount of disgusting magenta bright pink flamingo crap that woman owns is <laughs> nothing to do with race i love it <laughs> it's like anything you know, fluffy pink sparkly it's my nightmare <laughs> To each their own. But I do yeah. think it's interesting how a lot of these things have kind of lasted. You know, they linger. Like, you can you, you can wear a pop of color and it's acceptable. But if you wore, like, entirely one color, it's probably, especially if you're a man, that's going to be considered tacky or loud or powerless. I don't know about yeah. LA, but over here the last few years, guys have been like, hell yeah, I'm going to wear a pink shirt. You can't stop me. And it's become a thing. I don't but know it's, the, it's the lightest of pinks. It's never <laughs> no, It's salmon, isn't it? It's like a salmon yeah. colour. But there was a footballer called Nicholas Bentner who wore pink football boots and he tried to tell everyone they were salmon and it became a laughing stock. And people still, oh I'm referencing them now, people still reference his salmon football. And there is like, there's a whole, there's a whole class thing within football with all the old commentary guys who played in the 80s. Like, I don't see what's wrong with a black pair of football boots. I don't know why we have all these frou-frou pinks and all that. It is. <laughs> It's a, it's a generational thing. Oh my gosh! Yeah, it's funny because to me, I'm like, okay, they wore salmon colored boots. Like, I, you know, it's one of those things where personally, I don't see the big deal, but culturally, it's obviously still a big deal. Like, exactly. we're we're talking about it. Yeah, that's like funny. I'm gonna go and Google salmon colored boots after this. Yeah, Google Nicholas Bennett. He was hilarious. He thought he was the greatest footballer that ever lived. Everyone else, not so much. <laughs> But he ended up getting the best. Didn't everyone call him like Lord Bentner because he thought he was that something horse? like that? Because the, the the boots were just so they were just so you could watch a football game and the only thing you'd see were his feet. <laughs> now, now everybody. Well, I think he was one of the first, wasn't he, to start wearing silly mm. coloured boots? Oh, they're all orange and green and yeah. things now, aren't just they? Got it in the neck. Someone had to take one for the team. Yeah. <laughs> just moving on then quickly to to our next point we we've heard i've heard this phrase and i don't really know what it means but it sounds like a fascinating phrase so i'd love you to elaborate on it for us carolyn if you could tell us what the phrase color anarchy means and what it entails because i just i love how that sounds just anarchy i want to invoke some color anarchy 
<laughs> it's such a good phrase. Um, unfortunately, it comes from kind of a curmudgeonly source, but uh, it is from a color theorist named Albert Henry Munsell, who was irate at what he called color anarchy of this new chaotic color world where any color could be produced, anything goes. He He would have uh, screwed at the boots, right? Oh yeah. (laughs) He would have been very upset. He also hated what he called the foolish nonsense of color names. And so he set about to create a very systemic approach to color naming, but he has screeds about, you know, why are there colors called burnt onion and fresh spinach? And, you know, it gets very kind of, again, curmudgeonly about this whole thing. Um, but I mean, I guess to give Munsell a little bit of credit, it probably did feel really anarchic in, in a certain way, like very jarring. All of the visual hierarchies that you're used to your whole life are suddenly upended in a matter of years. Um, and I think, you know, it, it, Color was becoming very quickly a shorthand for all of these other cultural and social anxieties that people were experiencing. And so you can see in terms like color anarchy, how it gets offloaded into debates in the political sphere or the economic sphere, you know, all of these other things are kind of manifesting in discourse on on color. There's another one as well. We have uh, another phrase, which I want to know what it means. Color taxonomy. Yes. Um, So Munsell is part of a tidal wave of theorists uh, in the 19th century after the rise of these synthetic colors. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of people who start trying to give order to the color world. And so they start creating these very intricate color taxonomies, color systems. Some of these are more kind of things we're familiar with, like color systems, like the idea of warm and cool colors or complementary contrasting colors that kind of emerges in this moment. But there's also a new genre called the color dictionary that appears in this time. And the idea behind the color dictionary is, okay, we've got all of these people just wandering around willy nilly wearing chaotic colors and talking about colors according to strange names like elephant's breath and burnt onion and all these things. Let's just create a dictionary for every color where it's got a standard appearance and a standard name. And they look almost like paint swatch books, but they're designed after verbal, you know, textual dictionaries. So the idea is that the color is defined and everyone in whatever industry it's designed for will use that. Um, And there are tons of these systems that emerge in this moment. So, you know, it's kind of interesting. You can see people in the midst of all of this confusion and chaos, they immediately start trying to impose order. Um, and to me, that's what color systems are really indicative of is that need to kind of regain control over color because it doesn't mean what it's always meant. And so now we have to decide what it means. It's funny, it's a, new way. Like a load of old guys screwing and going, we just need there to be order. Be order. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. I love some of these, these people and some of these sources, but yeah, you do get that feeling when you're reading it sometimes just like, Oh my gosh, calm <laughs> down. <laughs> call it yellow or burnt umber or whatever. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and where, where's the fun in, in, in that having the order and sense? Cause to me, the whole span of color is it's the complete opposite of 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 order really isn't it you can have your bright pink socks with your bright green t-shirt there's no there's no order there's no sense there is there it does make me laugh though i wonder i do wonder you know when you go and you buy paint for your house i do wonder who is paid to sit and think up those names i've always wanted that job yeah Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I think throw random words together and get paid. It would be it. yeah, it would be glorious. Although yeah. I feel like I would after my like umpteenth shade of red, I would probably struggle to figure out what the next one is called. Like what haven't I used? Yeah. Um, I bet they've got a de- they have to have a degree in something that means that they're allowed to do it or something sad like that. Yeah. This is gonna be my next rabbit hole dive. I want to interview yeah. the person that names those colors. <laughs> <laughs> all about the rabbit holes and in, interestingly as well with when we refer to color there's also the determining of uh, color psychology as well isn't there and can you just briefly explain for us what what that entails as well yeah so um you know i think typically today when you kind of hear about like pop color psychology it's usually like the idea that red is energetic or blue is calming um, and a lot of those ideas are actually emerging again in this historical period where color psychology is becoming a field of study in its own right. So um, earlier I mentioned Goethe, but one of the things he does in theory of colors is he links emotions to certain colors. So he says certain colors are plus colors, which means that they stimulate your body and your mind. Um, he and he also, you know, that this is one of the moments when he says savage, savage nations uh, prefer these stimulating plus colors. So, you know, again, all of that is buried in there, but um he and Schiller come up with something called the, the temperament rose, which matches a person's color preference to their temperament and their profession. So it's almost like a what color is your parachute before, <laughs> before any of that existed. Um, but, you know, I think the thing that's interesting is that a lot of the color associations, the things that we have in pop psychology, we treat them like they're universal, like, you know, yellow is sunny and happy, but they also have a history, like they emerged at a very particular point in time, those kinds of assumptions did. And and so I think color psychology, while it's very real, the pop version of it is far too simplified. And it actually relies on this very old kind of legacy of the 19th century. But we are going to finish with some fun um, in terms of colors. So they don't always mean the same things to the same people, like you say, but Mm -hmm. Historically, uh, colours do have meaning throughout history and they vary. Uh, so we're going to chuck some colours at you and you can tell us. It doesn't matter where in history you Sounds take great. Off, Tell us, like, just pick your favourite. All right. So <laughs> uh, green. Okay. Um, so green, and, and I will just preface this by saying if you have an interest in a specific colour, I can't recommend enough. There's a series of books by the French historian Michel Pastoreau where he traces the history in Europe of, like, there's a book for blue, a book for red, a book for oh, yellow, awesome. a book for green. He's rad. Um, so Best I will just preface it. already. So. Yeah. Find these books now. Yeah. Um, and they're beautiful, too. Like, nice illustrations. Um, so green, I think, you know, now color psychology or the pop color psychology would say it's a very soothing, natural, calming color we associate with like vegetation and the eco movement things like that but um in the late middle ages green was actually considered an uncertain color it was considered fickle and ambivalent it kind of had a split personality so it was used often to color images of devils and witches Mm -hmm. um and it also sometimes connoted love or hope but it was used in these contexts where that could be false or ephemeral or fleeting. And so um, green was kind of just this like ambivalent, like fickle, capricious color. And, you know, one reason that might have been is because actually technologically 
green is a very difficult color to produce with natural colorants in a color fast way. Um, and it would often fade very quickly if you're using green materials to actually color something. It's not easy to mix yellow and blue to get a nice green. And actually in the Middle Ages, um, the dyers were se separated into separate guilds, the blue guild and the yellow guild. They couldn't mix into green. So um, green, I think there were some technological restraints there that kind of gave it this reputation for being fickle. But it had nothing to do with... Um, kind of soothing and nature until the 20th century when it had a resurgence. Uh, it was related to like public parks and hygiene and health, stuff like that. I wonder if that's where like green with envy comes from as well, that whole. Yeah, it probably is. I would imagine. Oh, that's fascinating. And then the color that I'm going to pick, obviously I will pick something nice and bright and shiny for us. I'll pick yellow. <laughs> <I think. laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> So I'm sorry, I'm going to ruin yellow for you for a minute. <laughs> it's okay. We rain on her happy parade all the time. It's fine. Uh, I keep trying. They keep they keep trying to rain on my parade. Don't worry. Crack on. <laughs> she's picked this. I know why she's picked this for Belle's dress in Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. Oh, oh, that's a, it's, yeah. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, I'm sorry, Belle, for what I'm about to say, but yellow for uh, quite a long time in European history, including in the 19th century, it was associated with um, very often with betrayal, degeneracy, prostitution, um, oh, no. <laughs> cowardice. <laughs> it was oh, not a pleasant color. Um, <laughs> and actually, you know, there was a long association of yellow uh, with portrayals of Judas, um, portrayer of Jesus. And so it was often used in anti-Semitic context. If you think of the yellow badges that Jews were forced to wear, yellow kind of carried those very negative connotations. Um, and in Europe, it really began to kind of change in the 20th century with sports because it was a highly visible color. And over time, people came to associate it more with happiness and leisure and things like that. Um, but I will say that yellow is a great example of how this pop psychology often doesn't take into account cultural differences, like not just historical differences, but geographic ones as well. Because in China, yellow has long been considered um, a noble color, kind of full of wisdom and abundance. The emperor wore yellow. So, um, you know, I think anytime we try to universalize about a color, there's going to be some counterexample from another place in the world or another time period where it meant something completely the opposite of what we assume. Do you want to do any other colors, Beth? Well, I'll throw in my favorite color, which is blue. Yeah, we both support blue football teams. So we should probably do this. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, blue is now... I think it consistently wins it for the world's favorite color. It's one that people tend to prefer, but um, really that was kind of a, a transformation that happened in the 18th century. Um, according to Pastoreau, that's when people latched on. I mean, they liked it before, but that's when it became like the preferred color. Prior to that, it was, it was actually red. Red was, um, Anyway, I won't go into the history of red, but yeah, blue. Blue also, we tend to think of it, one thing I think is interesting is we tend to think of it as a cold color, um, like it's associated with ice or cold things. Um, but for much of history, it actually was considered, a lot of people considered it a warm color. Um, and if you think about it, like the flame on your gas stove is blue. Um, in astronomy, the hottest stars burn blue. So there is a precedent for blue being a warm color, but 
now we it's so pervasive as as a cold color i think we kind of associate it with like if you look at the marketing of frozen you know it's all blue yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> It's all I was thinking about Elsa and her dresser. Yeah. <laughs> we've got yeah. Belle and now we've got Elsa. Uh, Beth and her Disney thing. Uh, it is unconquerable. You cannot get past it. Uh, Carrie, thank you so much for joining us. This has been so much fun. Thank uh, you. Not just like the physical history of what like this pop psychology stuff, but actually how humans have seen colour and how they... I like how they've been exposed to it, like these different parts in history when suddenly there are these explosions that would have felt like nothing else in history, like yeah. in the space of, I don't know, 10 years in the Victorian period, suddenly everything goes technicolor. It's mad, but it may give you arsenic poisoning. Yeah. Always a double-edged sword. <laughs> Tell everybody about your book. Um, my book is called The Sensational Past, How the Enlightenment Changed the Way We Use Our Senses. And there is a bit in color, uh, a bit about color in it, um, but it focuses more generally on how since people would have thought about sensation differently in the 18th century than we do today. So there's lots of weird stuff like the cat piano and fun food anecdotes, all kinds of sensory stuff. Just the kind of stuff our listeners love. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Alina and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join... There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year.